Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I'm Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles recording out of Awesome Inc. Studio. And we just sat down uh, with a really awesome guest. But before we get into that, I uh, just want to give you some updates on, on what's been going on with Middle Tech. So we've had uh, some cool stuff going on. We've been hinting at stuff on social media, um, talking about selling merchandise and all this other fun stuff. Um, so first thing I want to talk about is we got hats now. So um, if you've ever wondered how you can support Middle Tech other than listening and sharing stuff, we'd really appreciate it if you bought a hat, wore our brand around a little bit, told people what we're doing and what we're trying to do. Yeah, that'll grow. We'll make that into something cool. Well, yeah, we'll get hats and shirts and stickers, um, all that stuff. We got we got Jake working on that. We got our, our greatest minds working on that right we, now. We sold out of the hats pretty fast. Yeah. Pretty so, good amount of hats. Like, well, you know, more we did, way more than I thought. We did the lean startup methodology and we didn't order too many to begin with, but we did, we got rid of them pretty quick, which is cool. Um, so thank you to everyone who already has one, mostly mostly our friends. But if you're listening to this, uh, shoot us a DM. I don't know, however you want to get in touch with us, just tell us you want one. And if you're in Lexington, Evan and I will hand deliver it to your house. Yes, we've already done it. And it was a blast. We had a blast. We had a blast. We had a blast. Quick antidote. We got a boot on Evan's car, and there's a whole story that goes along with that. You should that. probably tell the story. Okay, we'll tell the story real quick. So we were delivering hats. Uh, and it was like late at night and we were going around to different friends' places and we were over at South Hill Station. Um, one of one of our friends lived in there. So we went in there. We were probably gone for maybe 15 minutes and Evan had parked in the lot. And we came back and Evan's car had a freaking boot on it. <laughs> and we had just gotten a uh, cane. So that's the only thing that kept Evan from just totally exploding. I had food. So I was like, food, I'm not a very calm person and stuff like that. Um, it's hard to get me really like riled up. Like it's really hard to get me you know, to, to get angry. So the best part of the story though, you know, they put that little notice on your window <laughs> whenever they put the boot on your car, you don't drive away. <laughs> Evan took the notice and just frisbeed it like over into the coal pile over there. <laughs> he's like, screw him. And the dude pulls up, Evan pays and like, he's ready to take the boot off. He goes, Oh, where's your notice? <laughs> Evan goes, uh, 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 yeah, that's gone, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm just dying laughing in the passenger seat. So I I took the walk of shame for Evan and went and got the. I was so here's a few things. Uh, did definitely did not expect them to ask for that back. I mean, <laughs> it was pretty nicely laminated, but at the same time, I was like, this is not going to be a game changer. Like, and I just like chucked it. Um, but another thing was, you know, I had my canes, and I, when this guy was going to show up, I, I I just was not going to get out of my car. I was going to make him come to me. And basically served me my ticket, and I was going to sign it while I'm sitting there eating my canes, and that happened. Like that, that that was a pretty good experience. But when uh, when he looked at me and said, "Where's the where's the ticket?" I was like, you know, I didn't know what to say, so I was kind of stuttering for a second. I'm like, "It's, it's gone. gone. It's just gone." <laughs> and he goes, "Okay, well, I'm gonna have to write you up. I'm gonna have to put this boot back on." Uh, and I'm like, "Oh, dude." And he's like, "It's gonna be ten dollars." And I'm sitting there, and I'm in my head, I'm like, "I'm not getting up. I'm gonna pay the ten dollars. Like, I'm not gonna walk over there and get it." Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm going to pay the $10. And then Logan got up and got it. Uh, and that was pretty, you know, a good bro moment right there. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, man. Because okay. I was not going to be. God, I laughed you know, at that for so long. I was not going to be farther so embarrassed funny. and go get up and get that. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Funny story. I've laughed at that for a while. That's good. Um, bringing it back to other middle tech updates. We've been hinting around on social media a lot. By the time this episode's released, uh, our trailer will be out. We have partnered with Kentucky Sports Radio. Um, to pr to produce a, a mini series is that work on it a limited series a mini series a couple episodes centered around how um, Lexington has been affected specifically the industries that are big in the fall so 
Keeneland, UK football, tourism around here, bars, restaurants, and all of that. Um, and we're interviewing the people who have been most affected by this COVID-19 pandemic and how Lexington's going to look different in the fall. You know, I don't think any of us really want to accept that fall in Lexington's not going to be the same as it typically is. Um, but the fact of the matter is we're still dealing with this pandemic and it's, it's going to look pretty significantly different. So we've yeah. been covertly sitting down with a couple different uh, people who are in those industries around town. Um, and it was, it was an awesome experience for us. So yeah. uh, big, we're super excited to get it out. Big leap, you know, for, for us yeah, it's, know, it's, to do this kind of partnership, this, you know, just two, two and a half years in, you know, Kentucky sports radio is probably the biggest news network huge. in Kentucky, but even though they just focus on sports, they're still the most well-known, you know, media brand. Um, I think that's just, you know, testament to our consistency and hard mm -hmm. work and, you know, for shout sure. out to co my co-founder, Nate, um, Nate Anstamaso, you know, was the one that kind of got this opportunity in front of us and just kind of pitched them on it. And they saw what we have been doing and, and liked what we've been doing and said that, you know, this is a partnership that, you know, we could, we could support. And so they're going to push us uh, and distribute this podcast um, on their primary channels. And, you know, the whole team's been putting in a lot of work for this. You know, Logan and I have been doing the interviews. Nate's killing it with the production. Like when you guys listen to this, Big it's going to be like what you hear as far as like what the professional studios are putting out as far as production goes. Got He's got a talent for that. And we're going to keep putting out stuff like this. Um, because you know he's just so good at it um, but I'm excited to see where this takes us you know our team has been consistently doing these interviews and we're excited to branch out of the tech space and become a more um, diverse media company and we're going to be sharing um, and, and doing more of these series with other people in Lexington and highlighting amazing stories um, and I think COVID is a great place to start just because it's on everybody's mind and everybody knows about it and we have um, done amazing interviews with some of our friends who you know, are very uh, also, you know, are well known in Lexington that a lot of you will recognize, but some of you won't recognize some of our guests, but they have major influence over the city. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just going to be a really, really cool um, series. It should be like five episodes. Um, articles are coming out, it might be more, uh, but it's going to run over several weeks. And, you know, we're just excited, like we said, to be working with you know, Matt Jones and that whole team over there at, at um, KSR. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty sweet. And just to clarify, Middle Tech's not going anywhere. Um, you know, the whole kind of premise of Middle Tech and what we're trying to do here is building that community and that culture around business, entrepreneurship, technology, and startups in this area. So we we see a lot of different industries playing a big part in that. And this one is more of a culture play. You know, Evan and I are big big on the culture and the, the nightlife and the bars and the restaurants and everything. So, you know, Middle Tech itself, this podcast will always be there, but we definitely see expanding out uh, into some different uh, different avenues. So we're super excited about that, as Evan said. Um, it's bringing it back to tech, bringing it back to middle tech. Um, we just sat down with Ethan Gill, who is a developer, an engineer at Facebook. Um, and man, this was such a fun conversation. Uh, just I, I kind of told Evan afterwards how tech related this was. This was so informative. And I at one point in the episode, I just stopped and I was like, wow, I'm just learning so much because I've said that a couple of times. You know, I've always been tech focused, but the experience that Evan had through Fuji, and this guy was also at Fuji, Ethan was at Fuji as well, they have just a deeper understanding than I do of technology, and it is so fun for me to sit here and listen um, to them dive really in depth about this stuff. So it was really cool for me, and just a little antidote about how I met Ethan. Um, as Evan mentions in this podcast, he, he likes to host bonfires where he invites just kind of a myriad of different people that do different things, and I met Ethan there, and he was talking about being a developer at Facebook, and you know, Facebook is like the mecca of tech companies to work for. And I always, I take, I guess it's like a journal in my phone. I just take notes um, whenever, I don't know, significant stuff happens or I have ideas I want to remember. And one of the 
notes that I took from that night was like, man, I love meeting people that are way smarter than me because it makes me realize how much I don't know. And it makes my curiosity and thirst for more understanding and more knowledge that much greater. Um, so this is one of those episodes where you're going to get a glimpse of what conversations with those kind of people are like, because he is so smart and he is passionate about what he's doing and he's laid out such a great path for himself. Um, so I, I know we're going to be hearing about Ethan Gill doing great things from, from here on out. Um, but man, that was, uh, it was a big deal. That's fun, man. That's what, those are the kind of conversations like I live for. Like hundred percent. that yeah. stuff right there is what I talk about with my friends like all the time mm-hmm. and to be able to record that. Because normally, like, we're interviewing people we don't necessarily – like, a lot of the interviews that we have with people we, we knew prior and we were friends with a lot of them. But, like, this is more of just kind of a free-flowing conversation. And um, it's, like Logan said, it's it's pretty technical-heavy, but it's not too technical-heavy. Like, you should tune yeah. out. Like, you'll Everyone be able to understand anything it. we're saying. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I met him at, at Fuji. Uh, we became, you know, good friends there, and we've stayed in, in touch of we, as we've got left Fuji and gone on to other things and – play racquetball every once in a while at the uh, at proof and stuff. But, you know, he's definitely one of the smartest people I know. Um, you know, one of the fun things about, like Logan said, about these bonfires I throw and just the friend group that I've, the people I'm trying to surround myself with is just like, you know, very conscious of, of people like really pursuing amazing things and uh, people that try their hardest to, to gain knowledge and, and be intelligent. And, you know, it's a perfect example right here. When you listen to this episode, for sure. um, Ethan's a special person. And like Logan said, we'll, we'll see where he goes, but, He's at Facebook now. He's building the um, future of uh, computation. So the future of computers on the team called, um, what's the team called? Uh, Reality Labs, um, the the next generation of computing, um, which is just so cool. Like, it just sounds so cool. And he's working on stuff that's so big that he had to sign an NDA. And there's stuff he just couldn't talk about with us, which is kind of cool in itself to be able to say that. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, you know, we're going to sing. We could sit here and sing Ethan's praises all day. Um, definitely note that this is a longer episode if you have to break it up into two segments of listening I definitely recommend doing that because the conversation is great from start to finish Um, so enough talking about it we're going to go ahead and get into it we hope you guys enjoy Welcome back to the Mill Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We are sitting down with one of my good friends, Ethan Gill. And I've been excited about this uh, for a while. I actually just asked him a couple of weeks ago maybe to come on. But, you know, one of the my favorite parts of my, of my friend group and just the people that I've surrounded myself with is just how smart so many of these pe- people are. It's just like uh, one of the things I like to do, and, and Logan and I have been talking about this lately, is I like to have bonfires. You know, just have people over, and it's just a good mix of people. Um, and everybody has so, you know, everybody's background is just so interesting. Everybody just talks about, you know, what they're working on and just, you know, life and, and Ethan walks in and we're always just amazed at like, you know, it's always Accenture or now it's Facebook and it's just exciting stuff that you're always working on. And so I wanted to get you on here and just, you know, share with this community, you know, a talented person like yourself that, that lives here and is working on amazing things. So let's just jump into, uh, you know, your background, man. Awesome. Tell us, uh. You know, where you're from, education, hobbies, tell us. Sweet. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, honored to be here, um, and it's great to, to finally get on the show. So I was born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky, um, so I, I really do have a strong connection to Kentucky and the Bluegrass area. Um, I moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky when I was in middle school, 
and um, ended up going to high school for the first two years at South Warren. And then I uh, got accepted into the Gatton Academy of Mathematics and Science, which is a basically a boarding school at a Western Kentucky University. So instead of taking junior and senior years of high school uh, in a public school there, I went to Western and took college classes. Um, and I've pretty much lived in Kentucky my whole life, except for an internship in San Francisco Bay Area and then another co-op for about six months in Manhattan. Um, so I love the area and... I'm very excited to be here. What were those uh, What were those internships or that internship in the co-op that you mentioned? Yeah. So the internship um, was at a company called Automatic, which uh, no longer exists. They got acquired by Sirius XM, um, the small satellite radio company. <laughs> yeah. um, but what they were trying to do was they built a smart OBD dongle that you could plug into your car and um, it tracked your driving habits, your fuel efficiency. It was able to clear your check engine light if it came on and it wasn't something serious. Uh, it was a super cool product. When I was there, I worked for a summer in 2016 on their iOS app and um, had a blast. And then the um, co-op was in New York at a uh, education technology startup called Basque, which also got acquired. Um, and they were working with um, companies like Blackboard and Canvas to add almost like a Snapchat style question and answer platform so that you could uh, talk to your teachers asynchronously and get answers broadcast to either yourself or to the class. Really cool idea. Um, and it was also fun to work on. So cool. at what point do you get into to coding to get those kind of internships at a young age like that? Were you kind of all along into computers and everything or where does that come into your life? Yeah. Um, I got my first computer when I was seven and it was from my granddad. It was actually his old computer. So it was a really really bad computer actually it ran windows 98 it had um, an eight gigabyte hard drive which was huge at the time i guess but i think i was getting tech a few years behind so um really started out just playing games on the computer learning how to use it my dad bought me like a windows 98 for dummies book um by dan gookin who uh has written a bunch of books for people who are getting introduced to computers in general um, from there, I basically got the dregs of computers from my family. So when my parents upgraded to Windows XP, I got their old machine that ran Windows 2000. And um, I didn't get into coding until I was 12, which was still very early, I'd say. <laughs> That's pretty young. <laughs> but but until, I, uh, until I was 12. <laughs> I happened to just be on Microsoft's website um, getting updates for the computer, and I saw a program called Visual Studio. And so I downloaded the free version of that and I discovered a language, um, well, not really a language, but a programming framework called .NET, which is really actually popular in Kentucky. Uh, there are a lot of .NET companies, particularly in the Louisville area. Um, so that was my first experience with programming. And really when I say programming, I'm talking about using uh, Visual Studio's UI editor and just dragging and dropping buttons and you know check boxes and stuff onto an empty app and then hitting the play button and seeing that run was like the coolest thing as a kid. Um, after that, really getting into actually rewriting code, my dad bought me a subscription to a, a um, online class site called Linda, uh, L-Y-N-D-A. And I ended up taking a, I guess, high school like CS level class um, that was intro to Objective-C. So in order to get that working, because my family was all PC, um, you can only build... Um, Objective-C easily on a Mac. And so I took an old HP computer that my dad didn't use anymore and I hackintoshed it, which means I basically got uh, Mac OS or OS X at the time running on a, a Windows machine. 
um, which was a huge bragging right as a, a teenager. It sounds like your parents and even your grandparents, your grandfather, like understood the value of that kind of technical education early. Um, would you say that's that's fair to say? Like they knew that you should probably be you know, learning these things or at least there was some value related to it? I definitely owe a debt to my grandparents and parents for, I guess, just noticing that I had an interest and really encouraging it. Um, I think that, you know, that's not something that I could have known to do at the time. So that was super helpful. But um, I think even going past that and getting into high school, my school did not really have uh, computer science classes until I moved on to Gatton. And um, they didn't actually introduce a computer science course at South Warren until two years after I left the school. So um, I, I really do think that I kind of got lucky in terms of just discovering computer science because it wasn't uh, present in my education. Yeah, so. would you label yourself as self-taught then? I think so, at least early on, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I would say it's about 70-30. I am not full-on Peter Thiel in terms of thinking that no one needs to go to college or that you don't need um, any formal education. Uh, so after I left Gatton Academy, I went to the University of Kentucky and I got my degree in computer science there. And there were several classes I took at UK that I had never um, really been exposed to that way of thinking. There was uh, you know, a class where I learned to program in assembly, which is really low level. Um, and then I took some computer engineering courses and learned about how uh, you know, just the hardware in a computer works. And that was also something that I hadn't been exposed to and didn't learn on my own. So um, I think that my answer would be there's a mix. Yeah. It's definitely great to have the drive and, and teach yourself, but education can help. And luckily nowadays, there's lots of amazing resources online like uh, iTunes U and MIT OpenCourseWare and I think Stanford U and several other things. In fact, uh, UK even lets you audit classes for free. So um, definitely encourage everyone to take advantage of resources like that. It seems like a common theme of the really good developers and software people that I know is that they were into it really early. They got their interest in either video games, or whatever it may be, and started figuring out how computers work. Um, and I think I've heard in the past when I've been trying to study Spanish that your kind of window for really understanding something and learning it really quick gets smaller and smaller the older you get. So do you think that there's something to be said about starting really early in terms of having a deeper understanding of coding or what necessarily would separate someone who's really a really good developer versus someone who's uh, maybe just a junior level or never really gets to that, that point. I think um, I disagree with the premise to an extent. I have heard the phrase that, you know, learning a programming language is like learning a, a foreign language. And it, to some degree that's true in that you're changing the way you think about things and you do have to have a certain mindset. I think when you're, writing code. But but I think that it's not something you have to do at a young age. Um, you may have a head start if you do, but I know several people who are in their 50s and 60s and really still writing great code and are always up to date. And I think that's um, the biggest thing that separates uh, developers that I've noticed is that they're very driven and they are not okay with the status quo. They're not okay with just knowing how to program. They want to know, uh, constantly learn more. And I think that drive is the big differentiator. Makes yeah. a ton of sense. I wanted to touch on uh, Fuji a bit because that's where you and I met um, and really kind of became friends and got to know each other pretty well. Um, you know, Fuji was just a wild experience for everybody. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, summarize as best as you can, you know, your experience at Fuji when you got there um, and just, you know, what you worked on and, and how, you know, you ended up, you know, believing. 
Sweet. Um, so I was actually up in New York at Basque, uh, finishing up my co-op, which was, it ended in about May 2017. And um, a friend of mine, Arthur, told me that I should come back to Lexington for a weekend and sit down with the CEO of Fuji, whose name was Greg. Um, and at the time, I had already accepted a co-op in San Francisco at Intel. So I was going to be that fall working at Intel for a semester. Um, and I really didn't think I was going to turn that down. So I said, okay, I'll go talk to Greg, but uh, you know, I don't think it's actually going to amount to anything. Um, I ended up hearing from Greg and Sam Marks and uh, my friend Arthur, and they really did convince me that the company was was huge, and, and I was really drawn into the idea. So for those who don't know, uh, Fuji is a, an ad tech company, but um, maybe you could give a better explanation. Yeah, I mean, we were essentially building a platform that bridged the gap between social media and on-demand delivery services so that brands could deliver physical experiences to people's front door off of a call to action on social media. So the example I like to give is we used to work with uh, Disney a lot uh, and all, all their Star Wars movies when they were launching, they would tweet, hey, Star Wars fans, tweet this hashtag and this emoji and we'll deliver you a free lightsaber, for example. And 60 minutes after they tweeted that and put in a little bit of information, a lightsaber would get to the front door and those people that engaged would then have this amazing delivery that they could take a picture of and share with their friends. And then it became viral and then it trended and it's just like an amazing platform. Uh, we revolutionized. Uh, I, I personally think that that's a revolutionary idea. Um, I think it was a little early. Um, I think that as time goes on and some of these on-demand services and their APIs and their capabilities improve, like that's going to be a major part of the marketing landscape. Um, but what Fuji has done is, is built an you know, amazing uh, you know, company right here in Lexington, Kentucky. But yeah, that's the quick, quick rundown. Yeah. Um, so Fuji brought me on in May of 2017, and I was there for about a year. So I helped them build an iOS app, and then I helped also start on an Android app. Uh, which they were going to use for um, quick access to campaigns, uh, depending on which social media network you were using. Uh, the app did not end up panning out, so it was a great learning experience for me. Um, it's always disappointing when ideas fail, but you know it it worked out uh, the way it did, and uh, I definitely don't regret picking Fuji over Intel. I have kind of thought at some time, you know, what would it have been like to work at Intel? But I think um, I was able to get the corporate experience after leaving Fuji in 2018. So when you said it was 2016 when you were working at Fuji? Uh, 17 to 18. 20, 17 to 18. So how old were you when you were at Fuji in this startup environment? Actually, when I started at Fuji, I wasn't 21 yet, um, which was pretty annoying because Fuji generally did outings and a lot of them I wasn't really able to get into. <laughs> yeah, I think I was 20 when I first joined too. And it was, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be such a crazy experience to join something at that age. I'm 23 and I'm in a pretty cool startup right now at Leadrilla and I even feel young to the game, but I can't imagine being not even able to drink and being around all that. Um, but I kind of say that to say like, how did that, you know, impact your relationships that you were building there? Did that kind of propel you forward to be learning from people that were probably a decent bit older than you through the company? Yeah, I think it definitely did. I never got the sense at Fuji and at startups in general that age mattered that much. Um, and I think that in startup land um you are able to it's it's really meritocratic to an extent you know even if you are young or old or uh maybe not the average case uh for a software engineer you're still able to prove yourself with your work so uh, that was it was a really great experience despite the hurdles of you know social events um and there were a lot of 
great people I worked with there, like Evan yeah. mentioned. Um, uh, a lot of really smart, creative folks, and uh, and I've made a lot of friendships that have lasted to this day. Man, I think the aggregation of talent that we had there, um, I've never seen anything like that in Lexington. Like I've, we've interviewed a lot of startups uh, in Lexington, and the talent, like the like not only talent but also the age of people there. So the very talented people for being young was, you know, off the charts. I don't, I don't know if there has, it'd be hard to recreate that in Lexington again because of how exciting the model was and how exciting the product was at Fuji. So I will approach it from a different angle, which is that um, I was under the impression after getting through a San Francisco and New York stint that Kentucky didn't have a ton of future for me um, and that I was just basically going to have to move somewhere else. And Fuji was the first company that convinced me that I might not be correct in that assumption. Uh, the amount of talent that was there kind of made me rethink you know, the fact that I would have to move to the coasts, uh, which is a very classic almost meme at this point in computer science that you pretty much have to either be in the Bay or the East Coast. So uh, I definitely think out of the startups I've seen in the past year or so, Fuji was a very high energy startup. Uh, but I don't think Fuji was, you know, like winning the lottery unique. I think it's definitely still possible. Uh, and there's a ton of talent in Without this a area. Question. Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, lightning in a bottle in a lot of ways, given how everything came together um, and just the, the way that people were, were brought to that, to that building, you know, to build that. Yeah. Um, what were some of your biggest learnings um, from that experience? You know, there, there were so many, you know, Fuji... Nobody there had ever been in the situation we were in. And so, you know, always, you know, that, that looking back, um, that's one of the most important things to consider is like nobody had any experience with, with that level of, you know, growth yeah. and that level of, you know, the level of clients we were working with. You know, nobody had anything relatively close to what we were doing. Um, and so the, we, we learned so many things as a team and as individuals. Um, but I'm curious to hear, you know, what your thoughts were. Well, I definitely had a chance to really um, dig deep and improve my iOS and Android knowledge while I was there. But I think one of the biggest categories uh, of improvement that I was able to make while at Fuji was in soft skills. So um, just dealing with people, um, you know, interpersonal communication, uh, presenting, um, you know, the fact that you were able to communicate all the way up to leadership, which is great benefit of startups, but not so much the case in in large companies was also really great. So um, I think I was able to find a way to craft input uh, to the audience I was trying to get the point across to. So it's made me better in all my jobs since then at you know deciding what the audience should be for a specific piece of information or um, trying to make things actionable instead of just you know, regurgitating knowledge at someone. That's easier to learn at a startup because you're wearing you know more hats than you would at a corporate company where you're very siloed to that one particular thing you're working on. Whereas you know you're lead iOS at at Fuji and you know you had to interface with sales a bit. You had to interface with Sam who was uh, you know VP and then his boss you know CTO definitely you know, William, yeah. So and another example just even from an engineering perspective is that um, at large companies Accenture and at Facebook. Uh, generally you have roles that are more siloed, like you said. So you'll have a specific team or group of people whose job it is to make sure continuous integration and, you know, releases get out and 
uh, manage testing. Like you might have a person whose entire job is just make sure testing works well. At a startup the size of Fuji, you really do have to tackle every aspect of uh, what you're building. You know, you have to make sure it's testable. You have to make sure it works reliably. If something goes wrong, it's almost always on you. There's nobody else to take care of the problem. You know, there, there's not really even an on-call system. It's just that you're always on call and you have to stand behind what you wrote. So I think that also makes you a better engineer if you approach it from the right perspective. You can definitely go into it and have an attitude of, um, you know, just building it as quickly as possible and we'll figure it out. And you kind of have to be adaptable at a startup to an extent, but you can also um, learn from experience because if you mess up, then you have to fix it. So you have all of these learnings from Fuji and I assume there is just a massive amount of growth from the time you came there until it was time to leave. Um, so now let's transition the story into interviewing at Facebook and starting to work at Facebook. First off, I just kind of want to know how do you even what's the interview process like? What is it like to apply at Facebook? Do you go on like Facebook and find a way to like, just talk us through the entire process of there's an open position at Facebook. I'm going to apply, get us to the interview. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say before I even begin a really great resource for anyone who's interested in applying to uh, a company like Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, would be a book called cracking the coding interview. If you're interested in the computer science approach, um, it's, really helpful. I read through that book front to back multiple times to prepare for my interviews. Um, it's almost like the uh, the go-to handbook for, for big company interviews in tech. Um, but my process specifically, and I was actually interviewing for Facebook and Google at the same time, and got offers for both companies and ended up going with Facebook. Um, both were very similar processes. Uh, I would generally get a recruiting message either on LinkedIn or over email. Um, with Google, I had interviewed back when I was at UK and I'd actually gotten rejected. So I had an existing contact, but with Facebook, it was a blind message on LinkedIn. Um, once I responded and said I was interested in searching for opportunities, uh, and this was in like March, 2020, um, or February, I think, uh, you had to pass a phone screen. So that's basically just a, a set of quiz questions or like talk about your resume. Um, it's pretty informal and it's usually with a recruiter. Um, after that, I went through with both companies uh, basically a mid-stage interview, which either was a phone call or a video call um, that lasted about 90 minutes. And based on that, you generally are solving either one or two um, algorithmic questions. So um, I can't think of a great example off the top of my head, but a, a classic one might be like detect palindromes in this sentence or in this word. So you have to list the number of palindromes, uh, you know, things like ABA or a palindrome because you can mirror them and they're the same um, and output that. So they're not necessarily brain teaser level, but they're not super difficult. They're just making sure you know how to write code and, um, and clearly comment and describe what you're doing and be able to back it up. Um, so if you get past that level, most large companies will fly you out or let you come onto their uh, office space for an on-site interview. And those usually are a lot longer. Um, there's kind of a stigma that those interviews have that they're very, very difficult. And um, for me, I had failed one before, so I was very determined not to do that again. Um, they'll generally be four or five 45 to 60 minute interviews back to back with a lunch break in between. And sometimes the lunch break is actually another interview. Sometimes it's a chance to ask questions about the company informally. Um, 
So in order to prepare for that, I really uh, read that book front to back. I also went on HackerRank, um, and another site is called LeetCode. They're both basically um, free sites you can sign up for and practice uh, algorithmic coding. So I would highly recommend those as well. Um, it's funny though, um, I was interviewing for Google in Boulder, and I was interviewing for Facebook in originally Boston, and they were both going to send me out for on-site interviews, and then um, COVID happened. So my on-site interviews actually became remote interviews, and I had to do um, basically back-to-back -back Friday and Monday all day long on-sites. So I actually took uh, vacation from my job at Accenture at the time. Um, it was wow. pretty strenuous. And Accenture is not, you know, just some random ass, you know, <laughs> business either. Like that's that's hard to get too. Like that's one of the top uh, consulting companies in the world. So, you know, your background's pretty pretty special there. Before before we keep moving on into Facebook, you mentioned you got an offer from both Google and Facebook. What made you choose Facebook over Google? If there was like one thing that you could you could pin. Yeah. Um. So, I think one thing that really made a difference for me was the way that Facebook does their uh, initial onboarding. So at Google and almost every other company I've ever interviewed or gotten you know, interested in, you generally apply for a specific position. So when I applied for Accenture, I applied uh, for a you know consultant role, which was doing digital business integration, um, which is just a fancy way of saying I built apps for companies that Accenture worked with. Um, but I knew going in that I was applying for that position. Facebook, you apply for um, the role of, for instance, software engineer. And if you're an engineer coming in, you do what's called a boot camp. So you actually don't have to select what team you'll be on until after you've been working for six to eight weeks, for instance. Um, and that allowed me to uh, branch out and I really appreciated the flexibility. So that was a huge decision in me going to work there. What what teams are there? So, you know, everybody's, everybody's pretty familiar with, you know, Facebook owns Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, Talk about the different teams that you had the opportunity to sit in and, and kind of learn learn about. Well, I can't go into too many specifics, um, but I sat in with an Instagram team and a Facebook team, um, and then I ended up taking neither of those. So I'm actually working at Facebook Reality Labs now, which is uh, Facebook's rebrand of AR and VR. Um, and I was pretty excited to have the bootcamp opportunity because without it, I wouldn't have discovered um, Reality Labs at all. I, I really wouldn't have even considered doing it. I think that's so cool um, because it allows somebody applying to a gigantic company yeah. to come in there and build something they care more about than maybe just one particular thing, like you said, that you interviewed for, and they just place you there immediately. Um, I think it's cool that you know they're at least trying to align, align a bit of interest with where you go. I think that's really cool. What were you about to say? Yeah, I mean, so just to go into the AR VR thing. Had you worked in anything augmented reality, virtual reality before that? Or was it something that just kind of caught your attention? You're like, I want to learn more about this. I want to dive in as much as you're able to, to speak on that. Yeah. Um, so I had no prior experience with, um, with AR or VR, like in software engineering whatsoever, um, except for I did some hackathons when I was at UK. And during some of those hackathons, I built apps uh, for the Oculus Rift at the time, which was a separate company. And um, that was just dipping my toe into the water. So mostly, I can't remember if it was Unity or Unreal, um, but I I built just some very basic layouts with a friend of mine named Dean Crockett. We've had him on. Oh, yeah. He's been on. Nice. You guys have some incredible friends. Just a little <laughs> side note. Dude, I'm telling you, man. Fuji brought 
the city's most talented people yeah, together. It's crazy. It's, just, it's wild. But everybody's like, everybody's like super close. Yeah. It's like we all are have like weird quirks and we're all like weird in our own ways. We all have respect for each other because, you know, we all bust our ass the things we care about. Um, but anyways, continue. One thing I do want to, you know, mention is uh, the defined role of, of that team within Facebook is to, you know, define the future of computing, right? Um, through hardware, whether it's AR or VR. Um, yeah. You can't, you can't speak too much about it, but, um, you know, tell us a bit about maybe what your day looks like or how much, like, what can you tell us about what you, what you do there? So I really can't be specific with what I'm working on. Um, I'm under a non-disclosure agreement. So I'll talk more about what um, just the experience of being an engineer at a large company is like yeah. and how it's different than at a startup. So For sure. um, I kind of almost went in a completely pendulum different direction after Fuji. So I went to Accenture, which is um, one of the largest consulting companies in the U.S. And I believe they have something like, it's definitely over 100,000 employees in um, North America and Europe. And I might be at a quarter million at this point worldwide. Um, so that was a incredibly uh, jarring experience going from a company where I, I had free reign, I had a lot of creative freedom, and um, and then going to a company that has a very defined way of doing things. Um, and my role was working in small teams, so that was still great. But one of the things that made me look for opportunities while I was at Accenture was um, the ability to have creative input again. And I will say that um, Facebook so far has been really good about that. I, I do think um, it's kind of in the middle between a startup and, and a large, uh, you know, more rigid company. They kind of still have the startup mindset. I think Google probably does as well from what I've heard. Yeah. One thing we actually talk about pretty often um, between Logan and I and some of our guests is just the criticism that Facebook gets. Now that you're from the inside, do you, has your, have your opinions on Facebook changed at all about, you know, what their perceived, you know, intentions are or anything like that? Like what's changed from your perspective on how you look at them since you've joined? Um, so I have a pretty complex opinion on, uh, Facebook as a company and on just tech in general. I think that I personally believe that social media can be a force for good and is a force for good. If you look at what it's done in terms of broadening people's uh, ability to interact with people they never would have, or ability to um, you know just discover new things or really maintain friendships over long distances in ways that weren't really possible you know 15 years ago. I think that is hard to argue that it's a net negative for society. Um, there are definitely some pain points, um, but I I tend to think that the good outweighs the bad, and I I really do think that the world would not be better off if you know, social media didn't exist. That's that's my stance too. So after I met you at Evans Bonfire, that was kind of a cool experience. Like it, it it was really significant to me to meet someone that was building, you know, the next generation of Facebook. And after we met, uh Evan and Joe Pro and I actually sat down and watched the social network. I hadn't seen it before. Um so that movie was just kind of eye opening to me. And then I sat down and I started watching documentaries about Facebook and then social media in general and the reason I'm kind of going off on this riff is I watched a TED talk about social media and I, there was a quote that I took out of it that I really like that I think you'll, that'll resonate with you as well. Um, and it basically said that social media is, is neither good nor bad. 
it's just the latest tool to do what we've been doing all along, which is telling stories and connecting with people. And like, it's up, to, it's pretty much up to the individual person um, on how they use that and whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing in their lives. And I know Evan kind of, Evan threw a quote in here somewhere about Mark Benioff and how he says it's the next cigarette. So I'll let you kind of take over on, on that riff. But. Yeah. I mean, my, my sentiment towards Facebook and Google and, and some of these big companies, Amazon is similar to what, you know, Ethan just said is they've built these platforms and these tools and they're not inherently bad. And in my argument, in, in my opinion, actually, they're a little bit more inherently good in, for the world because they're improving the way that people interact with each other. They're giving people opportunity to start businesses. Um, they're giving people opportunity to, to learn. Um, and I just think it's really unfair to criticize you know, some of these CEOs who, when they started their company, they really had no idea it would end up being what it was. Like, you're telling me that Mark Zuckerberg at that age knew that he'd be battling with Donald Trump and some of these politicians over what's real news and what's not. He had no idea. It's, you know, so it's kind of unfair, in my opinion, to criticize these companies and, and founders the way people do. But I am strongly um, for the side of we should be criticizing these people, but not to the level that they that some people do criticize them. So you have to be like skeptical. That's healthy. Like it's, you have to have a healthy skeptic. Um, skept- you, have to, you have to be skeptical towards these companies. But yeah. at the same time, I think it's really unfair what some people have put on Mark Zuckerberg and said that his intentions are bad um, when I just don't think you know he, he could plan for all this. He's just building something and it kind of morphed with what the world made it. There's a very interesting discussion that I'd love to get more into, but I probably can't within the time we have. And that's um, the position that some tech companies in the U.S. are in is pretty impossible no matter what you do you're going to get hate from a segment of the population um you know there's a big discussion right now about how much power social networks like twitter and facebook should have and whether they should be regulated or not and i haven't spent enough time to really have a concrete opinion on that but but i do think that it's kind of a lose-lose situation um that for instance, Mark Zuckerberg's in and, and even Jack Dorsey to an extent. So I definitely think um, it's a good thing to be critical. And, you know, if you have a concern to raise it, you know, but I personally don't know of um, a solution that would make everybody happy. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, not a, there's no win-win scenario for, for Mark Zuckerberg or, or Jack Dorsey. Um, and it's actually, I think, impossible for them to please some of these people that want them to take care of fake, fake news. Um, in my opinion, it's, it's actually not their job to take care of fake news unless it influences elections. Like that's the most important part, right? Yeah. Cause that's democracy. But other than that, I, for I one don't think it's possible. And two, I just don't think that's their job. Well, I, before I forget this, like, Maybe you have an answer to this one of you guys. Someone somebody to correct me on it. But how would you even regulate a social media? Because, I mean, essentially it's just people sharing their ideas and opinions and everything. How do you even That's why go, it's impossible. How do you regulate that? So one key distinction is that social media um, is generally privately owned and has their own terms of service that aren't the same as, for instance, the right to free speech. So I personally believe, and I think that, like, the law and just previous examples are pretty clear on the fact that um, social media companies are well within their rights to restrict what they allow on their platform. Um, You know, a lot of platforms just straight up will not allow adult content as a good example. Um, 
but when um when you're talking about something as important as an election uh, i have been very happy to see that both twitter and facebook have taken that very seriously this year and are taking pretty drastic steps to uh, to limit the spread of misinformation and and do what they can to help people get you know verified information and even in regards to coronavirus that's been uh, a very promising thing what a battle that's been though because there's no way you can even really predict how much how fast technology is going to advance to the point it is because this is something i've been talking about a lot in terms of fake news and the way that you know photos can be manipulated in a way you can't tell in the way that now even videos like these deep, deep fakes, fakes yeah. like how can you even expect like facebook and twitter and all these would have to be moving so fast and having a lot of focus and resources put into that that side of the business to be able to combat this so it's almost it's just like who yeah. who who can you really blame well, almost there's, there's technical ways to do it but at the end of the day like they should try their hardest but it's just not necessarily their job you know uh, but it, it don't they almost don't have a choice it has to be their job yeah, now that's, like that's, it's, that's it's where their, like it's impossible for them to win though it's that's their like, responsibility the... to humanity almost like it could get spiral out of control so bad if this is a platform we come to just social media in general where we share opinions and we share news and we share important information like they've created it somebody has got to make sure that it remains a place where that can happen. One cool thing that I've heard is like, imagine Facebook is like the center of a city. So like, it's, it's like the middle, it's like the corridor where everybody walks around and and shares their opinions, like before the internet existed. Um, Would you shut that down just because a few people walk in there and say aggressive things or say fake news, but that's the only place people go to share opinions. Like it's a physical space. Like you can't do that. Yeah. You know, so Facebook is not ever going to be able to win in any in any way and i don't think it's their job like you can't the city is not able to sit there and, and watch people and listen to what they say and say you're not allowed to say that in this quarter like yeah they might be able to try but they can't just shut it down you know yeah maybe it's on the responsibilities on the users and it's just like people are gonna have to realize i mean it's been said for a long time you can't believe everything you see on the internet but people really need to internalize that i don't yeah. know there's just there's always gonna be people that you know, they're going to believe things on the surface there's level. fact-checking services being, you know, popped up. You know, when, the, this, when this deep fake thing gets worse, there's ways to technically tell through, like, compressions and how many times a file has been saved to know, you know. Benford's you Law right there. there. Benford's yeah. Law. Digits. Watch, uh, uh, what's that connected? Connected yeah, on Netflix. Great show. Watch that crazy um, show. Yeah, there's technical ways to help with this stuff. But, again, the scale that it's happening and the methods that it's happening and just the things being said, it's impossible to stop. Yeah, you know, it's just it's, okay. it's unfortunate. Um, Intense but, little part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, but it's you know I love talking about it because it's, yeah, it's you know big, I'm always going to you know back up these people like Mark Zuckerberg and and Jeff Bezos while being critical of them because again it's so important to be critical. Um, let's one thing I want to talk about related to Facebook um, and maybe just a little bit that I know we both have been talking about a bit back and forth. Uh, we talked a bit about it briefly at a, at a bonfire and then we just talked before we started recording. Is the metaverse? I know you can't say it, but I'll say it. Is that Facebook's definitely trying to you know play in this space in a large way? They've what definitely is, got a what is a metaverse, Evan? Well, metaverse is basically a, a, a universe that things um, that are digital take place, and there's an economy. There's all these different parties that contribute to it. It's not necessarily owned by anybody. It's like uh, it's another version of the world with it's not a game. You know, some people mistake it with a game. You know, for instance, like you know, Club Penguin, a really old example, like there's all these th- worlds that have existed that are considered games. It's just a, it's just a place where digital stuff exists that you can move around as um, an individual in and, you know, contribute 
to the world and build it and interact with other participants. And it's not necessarily owned by anybody. It's just, a, it's like another version of the internet, but you know, a little bit different. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that, is that how you describe it, Ethan? I guess that's a good explanation. Yeah. Um, I think the key, it's hard to explain. It's kind of hard to explain. Maybe you can. I think the key aspects of metaverse are that it's decentralized, um, to an extent, kind of like the internet is, if you think about that, like no one company owns the entire internet. You may have companies that service a lot of it. For instance, Cloudflare, which is now you know, serving something like close to 50% of all internet traffic. But even they don't have the ability to... Um, it's not like television where you know you have very large companies that own a lot of um, television and it's a one-way thing. Anyone can go create a website and put something up. And I think that's the key distinction with uh, the concept of Metaverse is that it's it's very open and anyone can create and contribute to it. Yeah. Um, so Facebook's without a question with horizon and, you know, their VR initiatives and Facebook in general is like its own, you know, it's, it's its own little world. Um, they're definitely moving towards the metaverse. Um, when you hear metaverse, like what gets you excited just in general, not related to Facebook, just in general, um, what, what, what appeals to you? Um, I am excited for where we'll end up in 10 years. I think that a lot of companies, you know, Microsoft with HoloLens, um, you had Magic Leap, which they maybe overextended a bit, but they did create some pretty promising technology. Um, you know, Google was probably one of the first companies to try to get there with even Google Glass, but they've kind of gone silence on it. Um, but I think that Apple's push towards AR, even now with iOS 14, they've announced um, that they'll have persistent geolocated AR events within apps. So um, for instance, if you have an app that you release on an Apple platform, you can uh, store in iCloud user-created content at a specific location in the world, and then other users of that app will be able to see it. So that's not quite the metaverse and that it's still gated, but it's getting there and i'm very excited to see how all of these companies and startups will push this boundary further yeah what are some of the things out in the world that right now are giving people a little bit of a taste of the metaverse so we talked about fortnite fortnite has very made it very clear that they are trying to build the metaverse um yeah what are some other examples that you see out in the world that you can say if you are looking to something that will give you a taste of what this might be here are some examples well i i do think that um Facebook Horizon, which is not available yet, um, from what I've seen in their press release, looks really promising. Um, looks like a pretty fun universe almost. Um, Fortnite is a really interesting example because I don't even think that they started out planning to go that route. Um, they have slowly introduced more and more you know, social aspects into a game that really just started out as a battle royale shooter. And uh, then they did stuff like release an exclusive snippet of a Star Wars movie within Fortnite and have an entire Travis Scott concert there. Yeah. And, and stuff that I would have never thought would happen. Um, so I think that is a great way to say that I may not even be able to point out to you which companies will jump into that space. I think that um, it can be a very opportunistic play in a lot of ways. And, and I'm very excited to see what happens next i want some clarification on a metaverse can it be it sounds like the way you guys are talking about it they could it could either be something like fortnite club penguin runescape like in something that you experience with vr or it could be something that's overlaid on top of the actual world actual reality through like google glass 
Is that so like, let's say you could have a metaverse where I walk outside and another user has built a vert, an AR, an augmented reality building. And I could see that. Is that kind of, so is it, are those two separate metaverses or is it all kind of filtering into one? It's, it's tough. I think the term is murky in general. It okay. almost might okay. be murky on purpose. I think anything that um, has persistability and that is not purely real life, uh, you could call the metaverse. And yeah. so uh, Fortnite is purely virtual, you know, and right. it's a full game, but there's um, a consistent world and events happening in that world that change it and, uh, you know, a consistent um, almost canon to it. And um, then you have things like augmented reality, which will take the existing world and add stuff to it. So, uh, you know, I would even call stuff like Pokemon Go as a metaverse because they've overlaid um, points of interest on top of the existing world. Um, the term kind of defines where those two things come together, where one day you may have, um, you know, a way to experience the same things, whether you're in the real world or not, and they're overlaid on top of each other. So that's, that's a cool. little bit beyond my comprehension at the moment. But. Yeah, I don't, plus the infrastructure isn't there for it to even exist right now. Right. Anyways. Well, what gets me so excited about the way that we're talking about this is that just seems like pure creation. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, oh, man, I could imagine kind of getting in there and you're, you're building like your own world. Fortnite introducing the create mode, like where you just create. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that is like they're, that's like them jumping. So it's like oh, they were man. walking. Yeah, so like they started true. as a game, Battle Royale. And the next big step was the Marshmallow concert. And then the next ones were like the Star Wars trailer, the DC trailers, the Travis Scott. Like those are steps in the direction of this is no longer a game. This is just a thing. It doesn't matter. It's just a place because like you took it from you have an objective to win a game to now I'm showing up to a concert. Like what is this now? And it's just nothing. It's just a place. And then when they introduce like let's build this creative mode, then it becomes whatever you want it to be, which which is ultimately what the metaverse is, which is just like a place where you go and just exist and build things and economies will be created. And, you know, it's just it's just a thing. I had this idea uh, for a business when I was – I worked on it for a little bit. I didn't understand. I didn't understand what it could be until now, until this conversation, I don't think. But I had this idea. It was called Radventurous Rewards. I wanted to incentivize people to get out and like hike and do cool stuff because that's what I, that's like my passion. Um, and I had this idea of combining pretty much Pokemon Go with hiking. So you would go out and you'd collect tokens from certain hikes and you could have some sort of augmented reality. That geocaching? See, like geocaching essentially, but like with augmented reality, you saw the token, you go and collect the token. Like it's, it seems like it's there, but it's augmented reality. Um, the I bet more, you some of our past guests that go wild have been throwing that around. Oh maybe. man. Yeah. I should talk to, you should call I them should, up and say, have you an idea gonna, for y'all? All right, Brad, I'm, I'm calling you. Yeah. I'm calling, I'm calling up Brad Luttrell and I'm going to pitch in this. idea. <laughs> But uh, oh, okay, man. enough on the metaverse because you know it's hard. It's kind of hard to talk about. It kind of hurts your brain a little about. bit, but it's fun. Um, I wanted to ask you some random questions because you know I just I'm sitting around a bonfire. This is what we do. What we do with each other, and we always have these great conversations. And sure. um, first question is like, what's the coolest trend in technology you see happening right now? You know, um, one thing that I've been excited about and has been going on for a few years is a real push towards functional reactive programming. Um, and to briefly explain what that is, it's almost like um, traditional programming, at least for user interfaces or for apps that you would interact with. Um, so not stuff like databases or behind the scenes um, would be if, if I want to build a an app on an iPhone or an Android device that you know shows uh, a list of stuff. Um, 
I'm going to describe what that list um, will do, right? So like I'll write a function like if a user taps on this button, here's what I'm going to do about it's it. It's like hard-coded. Yeah, it, and it, it's really really providing like a action response. Um, and functional reactive programming kind of flips it on its head. And so instead, you're just uh, providing the data and you're describing how it should be laid out. So it's almost an abstraction on top of uh, traditional object-oriented programming. Um, and I think it's a really exciting uh, transition. Um, you're seeing it in web technologies uh, in JavaScript um, with React Native and React. They kind of have functional reactive components to them. Uh, Apple, which just released Combine and Swift UI, um, which are completely changing the difficulty level and approachability of building an app on an iOS platform. Um, and you see you know, Google even starting to jump in the water here um, with technologies like Flutter, which is a, a Flutter and Dart is like a language and a uh, framework they built to almost allow you to create web applications without knowing JavaScript. Um, so I think that's a really interesting approach and it's making it easier for people to build things. Um, going back to when I was you know, learning code, the thing that really drew me in was the fact that I could drag and drop buttons um, and I wasn't even writing any code. Um, this is as close as you can get to that and still build something useful. So, so it's very exciting. For those people that aren't technical, is is that example specifically more geared towards people that are coding or if you are using an, a product, what's an example of like a tangible thing that somebody might interact with that was coded with, what would you call it, function? Functional reactive. Functional reactive. So, so what's something that people can look at and say, and you can say that's, that's actually functional reactive? I think you'd be surprised. Um, you probably wouldn't be able to tell a difference in most cases, except for that potentially it would be a little bit more reliable and bug-free. Um, from a developer's perspective, uh, it makes your job a lot easier. And it makes it a lot easier to learn how to build apps and quickly see the results of what you're doing. Let's, uh, okay, what about this one? Scariest thing you see happening in the tech space right now? Like what makes you just cringe and say, ah, that's not good? I think one thing, and I think we may have actually had this on the agenda to talk about today, so I'll go ahead and skip to it, um, that I've really been keeping my eye on in the past month or so has been the epic Apple kind of duel that's going on right now. Um, it doesn't set the best precedent for being able to um, have control of your own devices. So a little bit of background on what happened here is um, Apple and, by the way, Microsoft with Xbox and Sony with PS4 charge about a 30% margin. So um, Fortnite, you can buy V-Bucks, which really don't change the game. They just let you um, you know, get costumes and get different like axes and things like that. Um, but they cost real money. And any time you make that purchase through a PS4 or an Xbox or an iPhone, um, the company that runs that store will take about a 30% cut. Um, now, taking a cut of uh, the proceeds is a pretty common thing to do for no matter what platform you're on. So, you know, Steam on Windows takes a cut, but it's, I think, a lot lower than 30. It might be 10%. The key differentiator here between Xbox, PS4, and Apple uh, is that you know, an Xbox, you buy it with the assumption that you can only play games on it. And same thing with PS4. With an iPhone, they're rapidly becoming 
the single most used piece of technology in someone's life. Um, just phones in general are start to, starting to replace even computers now. Um, you know, I, I actually am on my phone way more than I'm on my computer except at work. So the um, concept of being able to use that device um, how you want doesn't exist. And I think that is relatively scary. Um, I initially was on Apple's side given that there's prior precedent for them taking a margin and that Epic willingly broke uh, the rules and basically prompted people who had Fortnite on their iPhone to go to their website to purchase instead, which was against Apple's terms of service. Um, however, one thing that happened, I think, just a few days ago is that Apple uh, provides a sign-in service called Sign-In with Apple, um, which is just using the OAuth standard under the hood. So this is a way, if you ever go to a website and you see login with Google or login with Facebook, Apple has a service that's exactly like that. Um, and they have announced now that because they have pulled Fortnite off the App Store, they're also going to effectively prevent any of those users who used Apple's private relay service from logging in to Fortnite, even on other platforms, uh, which is a very dangerous precedent. Yeah. Um, and I think something that um, I personally disagree with. That's, that's very scary. I mean, there is a precedent, like you said, for this. Um, and you have to cover costs. Like there's costs related to owning a marketplace, right? Yeah. Um, one interesting thing that I've heard said is when you build a platform, you're building a platform so other people can come along and build something actually bigger than you, mm -hmm. right? So you're trying to enable other people to come along and build things. Um, and to me, when I look at, you know, 30% take rate and or 30%, you know, cut that they're taking um, and they're preventing something like a Fortnite that's trying to create a whole new world, literally, from taking their full potential to where it can be um, because they take 30% of some of these transactions just doesn't, you know, it doesn't sit right with me from, from that perspective. It's almost like you're putting a bit of a damper on people trying to create something new, but I do get the side of, you know, you're running a marketplace, you're providing value by, you know, giving people a, a platform. The iPhone is a platform, right? right? Um, and, you know, there's going to be some costs, but, you know, it's hard to side completely with Apple on this because Epic's also got their good argument for what, you know, their, their opinion is. And just to be clear, Epic definitely has some um, ulterior motive here in that they have their own store on Mac and Windows where they take the margin from purchases made through it, um, kind of like a competitor with Steam. And I think with them, it's like 12% though. It something. is a lot lower, but they are still doing the same thing Apple is on, on principle. One argument I've heard though that I tend to agree with um, against Apple is that um, imagine if, you know, 40 years ago, you know, computer manufacturers charged a margin on any products you created with their equipment um, or to run on their equipment, would the internet have ever existed? You know, think about because of that very high margin, how many ideas just haven't made it to success um, or were never started in the first place because it was a disincentive. And yeah. that, I think, is the real um, disappointing thing here. I, I don't necessarily feel bad for Epic for getting that margin. Um, I do feel bad for a lot of the indie developers and people who are trying to just build a one-man or one-person thing and really can't make it work because the margin is too bad. I used to write um, apps and released a few on iOS, and you know I would make 69 cents instead of uh, 99. That is a huge difference. Um, and it, it really does sting when you only have a couple thousand users. Yeah, it's 
it's uh it's tricky. And this is another one of those situations where Apple's like in a you know, kind of in a tough spot. You know, they do have and isn't something is I saw something else that like this is like two percent of the revenue or something, like the that, that margin that they get on the on the platform. I don't know if that's true. I think I heard it's like a ridiculously low percentage of the revenue. I think probably high margin though. It has grown and they have been making a concerted effort to grow it. Um and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's more just the implication of how they're going about doing that that yeah. worries me. And another way to look at it, you know, for the for the audience is almost like it's a tax. You know, like in the to live in America, you have to pay taxes. Uh to be building on the Apple platform where so many people spend their time, you know, it's a little bit of a tax, maybe is the way to look at it. Um and this wouldn't be an issue if there were another way to run software on an iPhone or an iPad. But right now, there's not really. Um, apart from paying Apple uh, to be a developer and put stuff in the App Store, there are almost no ways to release software that can run on an iPhone unless it's a web app. And so that is a huge barrier to entry. You know, Google takes the same cut that Apple does, but they also let you install alternative stores or just install apps from your computer onto your Android device and uh, run those without them taking the cut. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got I've gotten into the Android versus Apple debate several times. I've got friends that use Android, and you know, I can't say I've actually used it like in depth, but it just doesn't look like a great user experience uh, compared to Apple. Um, I think Apple takes a bit of that control away and takes their ecosystem a bit more seriously for the sake of the user experience. Whereas with Android, you know, I've heard it's a little bit more clunky. Apps don't run on it as well. Um, is that is that something fair to, to point out that maybe Apple does have some good intentions behind being kind of closed in order to create the best user experience possible for people buying Apple products? So two things there. Um, number one, I think that the Android app quality bar is kind of a chicken and egg problem. So at least in the United States, um, Apple does have the majority of market share and most people have iPhones, but that's almost the exact opposite everywhere else. And yeah. so um, in the U.S., uh, U.S. companies may prioritize their iOS app a little bit more and put more resources into it. And that might be why you have the you know the thought process that, oh, apps don't run as well on Android. Um, it, I don't think, has anything to do with the OS limitations. Okay. Now, Apple does prevent you from doing stuff that you can do easily on Android. So um, not even talking about the store now, just like you're a lot more restricted in what you can do in the background. Um, you know, they're very insistent that you are well behaved and they'll basically just terminate your app if it's doing stuff um, in the background that it shouldn't be. Um, they're really restrictive with privacy and permissions. And, and that's something I do appreciate about um, That's you know, important Apple. for user experience. Like, that's really important. Absolutely. And that's why I still do use Apple products despite disagreeing with them on this. Um, it, I do think that the user experience is a little bit better at least. A little bit better. Okay. All right. A lot of knowledge there. Whole lot of whole lot of knowledge. I love listening to conversations like that. I I can't really contribute as much to stuff like that. Um, but it, I'm always learning when I sit around those bonfires gotta, and listen to this. You got to sit around and listen. Yeah, and you'll be that's what I'm doing. Throwing man. it in there. That's just what like I'm doing. Else. You're doing um, well. <laughs> uh, no, but really, the the fact of learning and that kind of made me think of this next generation of developers that are going to be coming up. What's the next move for education? Is it going to be that you know coding is taught like English classes or you know what where is it going? How would you want your kid to be introduced to the world of coding? So you know there's kind of a an attitude that everyone should have to learn to code and I, I don't necessarily agree with that because to me that's just like saying everyone should have to learn to do any 
you know, career path. I think that, you know, tech in general is growing and it's a lucrative space to be in, uh, but forcing people to do it, maybe not. So I think that uh, there should definitely be the opportunity available to anyone who wants to learn to code. Um, it should not be something that, um, you know, like in my experience, my school didn't offer at all. And I, I only had the option of being self-taught. And if I wouldn't have had parents who, you know, really provided me with resources and encouraged me um, and, you know, paid for classes, uh, then I probably wouldn't have ended up where I am. And so you know, having that publicly available to anyone who wants it is a huge, huge benefit to um, the entire country and, and the world. So I'm definitely a proponent of providing that access. But I don't think that everyone should be forced to um, get involved in programming. I think it's a great skill to have. And there's only so much you can do to make someone think uh, like an engineer. So, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So a question that I kind of wanted to ask more for our listeners. So let's say that, you know, whatever the timeline would be, you have, you have a kid and you want, you want them to be very technologically literate and maybe be able to have the same opportunities that you've had, whether that's work at Facebook or Google, whatever the company is at the time. It's like, that's the Mecca of technology jobs and developer jobs. What would be the path that you would try to guide them on right now? So I'm almost thinking this of like people who are listening, what, what are the steps they could take to have those opportunities in front of them, uh, whether they're a little bit older now or whether they have children that they're starting to get involved in this stuff? What would you suggest the path be to getting into a company like Facebook? Yeah, um, I think that really the earlier the better. And if you're raising kids and um, you think they might be interested in technology or computers, you know, getting access to um, free resources you know, that have really exploded since I was growing up, um, you have even MIT and Hour of Code providing tons of just free classes and building blocks of programming. Uh, if you have an iPad or a Mac or an iPhone, um, you can download Apple's uh, basically Swift um, Learn to Code app, which is really cool and is a very fun, approachable way to learn the Swift programming language, which is pretty popular now. Um, even going to like a library and checking out you know books and and just taking advantage of the, the resources that are available is huge. Mm -hmm. For sure. So, well, I just want to dig into that one last time. So let's say people who are leaving high school right now, because I know the one thing I wanted to kind of pick out from the story you told about getting involved in Facebook was that you got a recruiter that reached out to you. Not many people are going to get recruiters reaching out to them. What are some steps that maybe like a, an 18 year old could take that's into coding? Maybe not, you know, Facebook material coding at that level. Is there anything that they could be doing to, you know, if their goal is to work at Facebook. Yeah. Um, I think that's a tricky question to answer, but my advice would be always be on the hunt for opportunity. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't start out at Facebook right out of school. And right. I, I really did work my way up, um, starting just doing fun projects and, uh, working with family friends who needed me to help migrate some code and then moving on to you know some co-ops or internship opportunities in college and then moving on to uh you know a startup like fuji and then you know having that resume which allowed me to apply to a company like accenture and then to facebook um i, I think that really constantly trying to improve year over year constantly trying to um learn and take advantage of any opportunities you have like um, any internships or, you know, 
if you have a, a school nearby that has a career fair, that's a great way to get dialed into what the local community has to offer. Um, there's lots of great companies in Lexington that are really trying to help with this. Awesome Inc's actually one of them. They have a, a coding boot camp. Um, you know, like I mentioned, there's tons of uh, other ways you can do it. You can go through free resources. You can, um, you know, just ask around online. I think um, sites like Twitter are actually pretty useful for this and Facebook as well. Um, there's lots of local coding groups you can find and join and probably a lot of people who are willing to mentor too. Okay, cool. That's actually, that's a great answer. I just thinking from the perspective of a listener, I feel like, you know, that's such a cool thing to be sitting here talking to somebody that works at a company that's as huge as Facebook. So I just wanted to dig into that a little bit deeper. Um, but to kind of bring it back to home, I'm just going to kind of broadly ask, what do you think of Lexington as a city? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, I, I was born and raised here and I really, really love the area. Um, I would love to stay here as much as uh, I can and give back. So one thing I've actually been um, surprised by a little bit and, you know, it's been good to hear is that um, a lot of companies are opening up to remote work and you could argue maybe they've been forced to due to um, COVID-19 and some of the repercussions of that and offices being shut down. But but it's been good to see that and I think it will widen the opportunity available in areas like Kentucky. Um, so you know, that's one of the reasons I'm able to be here right now and not in New York is um, Facebook for the rest of the year has pretty much transitioned to remote. Yeah. So when you say give back, like what's what's in your head as far as that goes? How would you want to give back to, to Lexington? You know, I'd love to be available as a resource um, just to provide advice. Uh, I'm always happy to grab coffee with anyone who's in Lexington area and interested in, you know, learning or getting intros to people. So definitely let me know. Yeah. I would love to see you get blown up with that. But if you're listening to this and you're interested in coding, by God, you better go get coffee with Ethan if he's if he'll accept that. We've, that yeah, we've good uh, lord. I mean, one thing that Middle Tech tries to be is like a connector, right? Right. And Awesome Inc. does a great job of this too. Um, ultimately, like if you want to learn something or meet somebody in Lexington, like just come to Logan and I, and like we'll we'll probably be able to at least give you some kind Cost of intro. Yeah. Yeah. Some, like some something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we don't know the person, we probably know somebody that knows the person. Yeah. Like, you know, we've been doing this long enough in the tech space that there's not many people in Lexington that are in the tech space that we probably don't have some connection to. We, that's one of the big things we want to do. Like, like Ethan said, this is sit down and get coffee with people and help them, you know, navigate the space and, and help, you know, grow Lexington. Um, but to end, let's go back to the question. I don't know if you've thought of an answer on this, but, uh, the most influential technology you see coming in the next five to 10 years. Let's look into the future on, on the end of this, this episode here. I think an influential technology that we've started to see um, pretty much become mainstream now is conversational assistance. You know, I would say six years ago, you had voice control. You didn't have the concept of uh, an assistant that interacted with you like you're having a conversation and i will be the first to admit that we're not there yet um you know siri alexa google assistant they're good but they're they're still definitely not even at the uncanny valley yet um one thing that i think will be interesting is um you know as technologies like gpt3 which is a, a neural network that's really good at natural language uh, that just came out uh, the open ai foundation released as those start to continue to improve and 
be integrated into things like conversational assistance, I think we'll get to the point where um, you know, assistants will have a memory. They'll be able to respond uh, to more than just one or two questions back. So on, on Google, you can say stuff like, um, what's the weather in Lexington? How about in Louisville? And as two separate questions, it's smart enough to know that you're talking about the weather still. Um, but there's still, you can't keep doing that. You, you're limited to very narrow scopes like um, weather or home automation. And you can't uh, talk to someone like you could um, me talking to you and just asking you to search for things. I, I could completely change context on you and you'd be able to follow. So I think that will be a huge improvement when that finally hits. And that requires structured data, right? Or am I wrong? It does require it structured requires data. requires a lot of structured data, right? I think I know where you're going with this too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could I could go there, but we don't need to. I'll, I'll just yeah, I'll throw it out there. Uh, but anyways, man, it's been fun. Uh, been wanting to do this for a while. You were one of the by far one of the smartest people I know, so we had to get you on. Thank you very much. But, uh, we enjoyed it. <laughs>